Hey, Happy New Year, everyone. Whoa. It just uh, always amazes me that uh, time goes so fast. It, I know without a shadow of a doubt, it's January 3rd. It'll blink and it's going to be tax day, you know, and then it's going to be heading into summer. And it's just the, the year just evaporates. It's just so amazing how that works. Huh. How many of you do make New Year's resolutions? Anyone? <laughs> emphatic no over there. I see that one over there. Well, a few of you do. You know, the thing about uh, New Year's is, is that we as human beings knew to, do need to have a sense of progression. You know, that something is going forward, that we're pushing the ball forward. And it's just natural to do that at New Year's, even though, yes, it's an artificial line that we draw on the sand. But at the same time, it's an important one. It's an important one psychologically and emotionally, but also spiritually. And uh, I found a few quotes. I love quotes. And I found a few quotes about New Year's. And see if any of these ring for you. This is G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite authors. The object of a new year is not that we should have a new year. It is that we should have a new soul and a new nose and new feet and a new backbone, new ears and new eyes. Unless a particular man made new year resolutions, he would make known resolutions. Unless a man starts afresh about things, he will certainly do nothing effective. From Neil Garman. I hope that in the year to come you make mistakes. Because if you are making mistakes, then you are making new things, trying new things, learning, living, pushing yourself, changing yourself, changing your world. You're doing things you've never done before. And more importantly, you're doing something. So that's my wish for you and all of us, and my wish for myself. Make new mistakes. Make glorious, amazing mistakes. Make mistakes no one's ever made before. Don't freeze. Don't stop. Don't worry that it isn't good enough or it isn't perfect. Whatever it is, art or love or work or family or life, whatever it is you're scared of doing, do it. Make your mistakes next year and forever. I love that. Here's one from James Agate. New Year's resolution, to tolerate fools more gladly, provided this does not encourage them to take up more of my time. Bill Vaughn said, an optimist stays up until midnight to see the new year in. A pessimist stays up, pessimist stays up to make sure the old year really leaves. <laughs> new Year's Day is now the accepted time to make your regular annual good resolutions. Next week, you can begin paving hell with them as usual. That's Mark Twain. Steven Spielberg, all of us every single year, we're a different person. I don't think we're ever the same person all our lives. Maria Bamford writes, 30 ways to shape up for the new year. Number one, eat less. Number two, exercise more. Number three, what was I talking about? I'm so hungry. All right. Let's see. C.S. Lewis, there are far, far better things ahead than any that we leave behind. And Nia Vardalos says, my New Year's resolution list usually starts with a desire to lose between 10 and 3,000 pounds. And finally, may all your troubles last as long as your New Year's resolutions. Got to think about that for a second. All right, Joey Adams wrote that. See, we need this sense of progression. What these are all talking about in either funny ways or in serious ways is that we need to feel like we're going someplace. We need to feel like we're moving forward. Because the truth of the matter is that the New Year is an artificial line. What's time really, if you think about it? You know what time really is? It's things moving in circles, 
That's what time is. I mean, our entire solar system is a giant clock. That's what it is. And everything is moving in circles. And because we can see the movement of the circles and we can count the number of revolutions, then we think that there is time. But it's really just the Earth spinning on its axis. That's one circle. And, and revolving around the sun, that's another circle. And the moon is revolving around the Earth. That's another circle. And so we have this illusion of days and months and years. But it's just circles. It's just things moving. And it isn't moving forward. It's just moving around. And see, the ancients understood this. They understood that time was not linear. We think of time here in the West as linear. There's a begin date and an end date. Look at any headstone, right? Beginning and an end. And there's a line in between, and the line defines your time. But really, time is a circle. And so where is the beginning and where is the ending? When the Bible talks about God as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, it's it's talking about this exact phenomenon, that the beginning and ending are just another point along an endless circle, along an endless center. Time doesn't exist the way we experience it. It exists as circles within circles within circles. But even so, we as humans need to feel something. We need to feel that there is this awareness of a moving forward. And so, I don't know that any of you would probably describe last year as perfect. Would any of you describe... 2015 is perfect. Okay. But midnight Thursday night, it was perfected. All right? The word gemar in, in, uh, in Aramaic means perfect. It means complete. It means whole. It means entire. So at the moment that that year ended and the new one began, the old year was perfected. It was completed. It was whole. It's gemar. That's the idea behind it. So when Jesus talks about, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, and we all freak out because we think we have to be without mistake, that's not what he's talking about. When James talks about in his, the beginning of his book that if we can endure through trials and tribulations and difficulties, then we will find this perfect result that will make us whole and complete and lacking nothing. That's Gamar. That's the same idea. And so we don't have to be afraid of the word perfect as long as we understand it means coming full circle. It means starting out on a journey, coming back to where you started, but knowing the place for the first time, the way T.S. Eliot described it. Knowing something that you didn't know before. Having a gift that you can now give to the people within your blast zone that you didn't have before. That's gamar. That's perfection. That's coming full circle. And what should be happening every time we take that journey, every time we take the descent that we were talking about and back to the ascent, considering it all joy, facing the trials and tribulations, moving down into the difficulty and the disturbance and the pain and all that goes along with it and coming back to the other side is a lessening of our fear. Every time we make that full circle journey, our fear is less, which means that our presence is more, our ability to be vulnerable, our ability to be completely transparent to another person becomes more and more real because our fear is dropping with each circuit we take, just like the bodies in the solar system. And so what we want to do this morning is continue on in the book of James. His first theme was about this this theme of endurance, this idea of 
enduring through trials and tribulations, this, this time of endurance that takes us into this completion, this full circleness that we're talking about. You know. Now, because you're here breathing, it means you endured through 2015. You endured through the year. Now, this is not a comment on how well you did or how well the year did. It's simply that you completed the circuit. You went through with it. You made full circle, full cycle. All right? That's really what we're after here, is just going through this and getting out to this perfect result. So, Gamar, acceptance of the reality of a full moment. Let's read James back up a little bit. I know this is going to drive Frank crazy because I always back up, but we've got to get the context here. We've got to get what's going on. So if you want to look at your bulletins that are up on the screen, James 1, starting at verse 2, this idea of endurance. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and the endurance, let the endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. All right? So here it is. Considering it all joy. Considering it all joy that life is difficult. That's what we talked about. Life is difficult. Anyone disagree? Life is difficult. But if we can accept that life is difficult, then it's not difficult anymore. If we can accept life's, on life's terms, if we can make friends with life, then everything starts to change. And this is exactly what James is talking about. James is the one evangelist who taught most like Jesus. I mean, if you analyze James' teaching and you put it alongside Jesus' teaching, as we're going to do this morning, you'll see they're coming from this exact same mindset and concept. Not that the other evangelists weren't, but there's something about James that so is in sync with the way that Jesus taught. And this idea that if we can move into, become present to, this kingdom that Jesus is talking about becomes real. This is the perfect result that James is talking about. Accepting life on life's terms, how hard is it to do that? How much do we resist life's terms? Way back, I don't know how long it's been, it's been 20 years, I had a friend who was from India, and uh, he, had, he had just come over and he was a computer programmer, nicest guy in the world, I loved this guy. He had really, really dark skin, and when he smiled, his teeth looked like a 100-watt light bulb going on. I mean, just this brilliant smile, brilliant white teeth. I just loved his smile. I loved his presence. The only thing that drove me absolutely crazy, he was late all the time. And not just by a little bit. We're talking three and four hours late sometimes. I mean, he just marched to a completely different drummer. Ever known anyone like that, honey? <laughs> completely different drummer. And so I found myself getting annoyed with him because every time we set something up, he'd show up late. Now, usually he'd show up at least with tandoori chicken, and that was pretty cool. <laughs> and the smile. What I finally realized is, is that I liked Ram so much that I didn't want to lose him as a friend. And so what I did was I just set up every appointment that we had, we met at my house. So he could be three or four hours late. It didn't matter. I just kept doing what I was doing, and when he showed up, it was all great. And I could be fine, and I didn't carry any resentments. And it was, Just don't meet him at a restaurant, because then you'll carry all sorts of resentments. <laughs> this is my way. This was my way of accepting Rom on Rom's terms. You know, I wasn't going to change him. You know, to be honest, I didn't want to change him. His tardiness is part of who he was. It's just the way he processed life. You know, it's that Eastern way of processing where linear time wasn't the big deal that it is, you know, here to us. And I was able to enjoy him. Are there ways that we can do that? 
Are there ways that we can maybe even trick ourselves into accepting life's terms as they present to us in any given moment, rather than always wanting to change them, being on edge because they're not exactly what we expected? You know, this is, this is what James is talking about. How do you count it all joy when you do experience these things? You start to realize they are the vehicles by which you can be perfected, by which you can be matured, by which you grow. No pain, no gain. We have to go through these things. But that may not be enough in the moment unless we're really consciously, actively working at being able to accept the way life is, the way it always is. Because endurance through gritted teeth... (laughs) is not what James is talking about. Many of you in recovery know about the dry drunk. This is not what we're talking about. Just doing it, grinding it out day after day, is not considering it joy. It's not going where we need to go. It's grateful endurance. It's acknowledging the gift of completion that is coming as a result of the enduring. That's the wisdom that James talks about. Just as I could finally find a way to endure my friend's tardiness, you know, we can all thrive in the face of the difficulties, in the face of a difficult life. We can become the happy warrior, if we want to use that image, that even as we go through these things, we can find a connection, we can find a place. Let's take a look at James as he continues on at verse 12. He says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now this reads just like one of the Beatitudes, doesn't it? Blessed are those poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed here is a man who perseveres under trial. Same formula, same idea, same word. That word for blessed there, tobey in Aramaic. Is an interesting word. It's related to taba, which is the word that we normally translate as good, but what really means whole, enriched, ripe, complete, full circle. It's the same concept. So tobey is the same thing. Enriched, whole, and complete are you. Is this man who perseveres under trial? Ripe are you. Able to perform to your design specifications are you when you can persevere under trial. This is what he's trying to get across here. You're full, you're ripe, you're complete, you're full circle. And the approval, once again, we want to look at it linearly, right, as Westerners. I do something good here, I'm going to get a paycheck over here. I do something good here, I'm going to get the crown over here. And it's like an if-then sort of statement. But that's not what's going on at all. The approval is the endurance. The approval is the staying put, moving through. (laughs) Someone was telling me, I always feel like I'm taking one step forward and two steps back. You know, I take a little step forward and then it just feels like I lose it all. And and I just feel like I'm, I'm, I'm completely lost. The trick is, when you feel lost, not assuming that there's anything wrong with the path that you're on. Even though you feel lost, you just keep going like that line from the movie, we're lost, but we're making good time. You know, it's like that. Just keep going. The endurance is the approval. The endurance is the crown. The completion is the crown. It's simultaneous. It all happens in the same moment. There is no if-then. Time is the circle. Any one point is the same as any other point on the circle. It doesn't matter. 
We're here now. We're enduring. We're involved. We're moved into this moment, even if it's a painful one. We're open. We're transparent. We're connected. We're approved. See how this works? It's all one thing. It's not a lot of little things. It's one thing. Jesus called it kingdom. James is calling it approval. It's the same thing. It's what's going on here. It's so hard for us as Westerners to understand how all of this works, you know, to be able to, to move through this. And James is a patchwork. If you really look at the book of James, these themes are kind of all over the place throughout his, his uh, book. And some scholars have said that they believe that somehow the book was, was handed down to us out of order. You know? But I don't know if that's really the case. But there certainly is this idea of recurring themes that come back through. So if we're going to finish the theme of endurance with James, we've got to move ahead all the way to the last chapter in the book, chapter 5. So take a look at James 5, starting at verse 7. Therefore, be patient. And it's so important to understand that the word there, both in Aramaic and Greek, really means patiently endure. You know, be patient, but patiently endure, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and late rains. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. So there's lots of phrases there that we need to try to, to pull apart. And the first one is this idea of patiently enduring. So in this verse, he's adding another facet to this whole idea. You know, in the first chapter, he's telling us that we need to joyfully endure. Now he's talking about patiently enduring. The word there literally means long-spirited. Don't you love that? Long-spirited. We would probably say in English, long-suffering. <laughs> long-suffering. But the idea is, if we can endure the difficulties if we can joyfully and gratefully move through the difficulties, something starts to change in us. And it's almost that we're not even aware of the change. We just do the enduring. We just stay the course. Things are happening that we're not aware of. It's just like that New Year's resolution to do your aerobic workout routine that you're going to do, right? Right, so you start it, you go to the gym, and it's hard, and it hurts, and you don't see any results, and everything in you wants to quit. And it's really easy to quit because you can tell yourself it's not doing any good. But if you push through and if you continue, right, then your wind starts coming. You notice the muscle tone changes. You feel the differences in your body. And then not only at some point do you keep going, but you actually start to look forward to the workouts. What James is saying is that life, prayer, anything that we do is just like that. There's something in the enduring that we won't see happening to us while it's happening. But if we endure, the results, the awareness will start to catch up with us and we will start to understand what's really going on here. This is what he's talking about here. This is what he's trying to get across. So to patiently endure, to joyfully understand. Now this coming of the Lord business, this is a tough one for us because we're always thinking the end of the world whenever you hear that, right? Coming of the Lord, end of the world. Do you know that that is an Aramaic idiom? You all know what an idiomatic expression is, maybe? It's an expression that you can't get the meaning from by summing all the definitions of each of the words in the phrase. You'll never get there. It's like it's raining cats and dogs. All right, 
You know, you write that in a letter, someone digs it up a thousand years from now, and they're saying, hey, you know, back in 2016, quadrupeds actually used to fall from the sky. That's what they will assume. There is, it's just a meaning that the group, the culture, agrees that it means. And so the coming of the Lord was really an idiomatic expression for your death. The coming of the Lord was the moment that you died. Now, it could be applied to the destruction of Jerusalem. It could be applied to a final judgment of some sort. But what it really meant was the end of an era, the end of a cycle, whatever it happened to be. It was you coming to a place where the rules no longer applied. And since you never knew when this was going to happen, since every point on the circle is the same as every other point on the circle, the coming of the Lord was always just about to happen. To the followers of Jesus, Jesus was coming right back. I just watched the movie Castaway a little while ago. Remember that movie? Guy goes off on the FedEx plane and he tells his fiance, I'll be right back. Then he's shipwrecked on an island for four years. I'll be right back. That's what they thought. Jesus was coming right back in their lifetime. The coming of the Lord was always just about to happen. And so the idea is you always had to be ready for the coming of the Lord, whether it was your death, whether it was the end of the world, whether it was the destruction of your city, anything that would end this era, life as you knew it, was the coming of the Lord. And it could happen right now. And so those parables that you hear Jesus talking about, readiness, you know, the virgins who didn't fill their lamps full of oil and those who did, they had to be ready. Always this idea of readiness. The bride being ready for the groom to come back at any moment was a, a, a cultural metaphor for the way that they lived their spiritual lives. And so this readiness always was part of what they were talking about, part of what they were trying to do. And so this idea here be ready for the coming of the Lord. Patiently endure everything that's going on. Because you don't know when your death is going to occur. You don't know when this thing is going to change. And the Lord will be right in front of you. And the worst thing that could happen would be that you miss the hour of your visitation. Miss the hour of the coming of the Lord. And so this idea, once again, of coming full cycle, full circle. This is the whole idea of the coming of the Lord. And so now he gives us the image of the gardener, the image of the farmer, waiting for the soil and seed and wind and rain to do their thing. And he talks about the early and the late rains, and everybody knew what he was talking about. Because in Judea, there are two rainy seasons, one in the autumn and one in the spring. And all the crops are dependent on the rains that fall between October and December and between March and April. And they understood all this. And there was nothing you could do to alter that weather pattern. This is when the rains came. And so you planted accordingly. You lived accordingly. You know, you salted all of your produce and did everything that you needed to do in between times accordingly. Your life was, was revolving around these cycles, these circles in, in life, the seasons. And all you could do was be a part of the cycle. You couldn't force it. You couldn't hurry it. You couldn't do anything outside of it. To be in rhythm, to be in pattern was good because it's all you could really do. And this stands in stark contrast to the image of the warrior, which we use so much in the church, don't we? We talk about being warriors. We talk about going out and, and of course, putting on our armor and, and taking the land for the Lord. Jesus doesn't use that image. Paul does, 
but he's using it in a qualified way. And I think we've overly broadened you know, the way that we apply that image to our lives. Because who really wants to live your entire life as a warrior? Always looking over your shoulder for the next attack. Living your life in that kind of heightened state of anxiety. But isn't that what we do? Look at our lives. Look at the way we live in our culture today. Think about what your day is like. How you fight through your commute and fight through your work day and fight to pay your bills. But what James is saying, what Jesus is saying, that there's another way flowing with these cycles, waiting patiently for things to come to fruition, to come full circle. Can we do that? Can we change the basic metaphor of our lives, at least for ourselves, internally? doesn't mean you don't work hard. doesn't mean you don't pay your bills. But it means that interiorly, you have shaken hands with, made friends with life on life's terms. You found a way to deal with all of this in such a way that inside you feel like a gardener. You feel like a farmer with your feet deep in rich, dark soil, watching the sky for hints of coming wind and weather. It changes everything. I wanted to read just a little passage from a great book that is dealing with uh, Jesus as an Aramaic teacher. And uh, this little bit is called Waiting for Completeness. Just take a listen for a second. If we accept the completeness, if we accept this completeness as a goal for our life's work, the questions arise. How and when do we get there? What do we do with our incompleteness in the meantime? To answer these questions, we need to consider the Aramaic sense of two words considered briefly in the introduction of good and evil. These words have more non-Middle Eastern baggage attached to them than any others we have considered so far. To begin to unload this baggage, imagine the following scene with me. The smell of apple, almond, and sycamore trees in blossom. The sight of riotously colored wildflowers in bloom on a hillside above the Sea of Galilee. The sound of thousands of variegated water birds, egrets, herons, and cranes following their intricate and beautiful migratory patterns up the Jordan River Rift Valley just at the right time. The black basalt hills above the Sea of Galilee providing rich, dark, but very thin soil upon which to sow. The strong winds blowing in from the Mediterranean at particular times of the day. In such a setting, timing was essential for success in planting. In Ishwa's day, the whole area of Galilee was much wetter than it is now, virtually a jungle in many areas. Water buffalo and lion roamed about. To travel safely through this wild landscape depended on knowing when certain areas were flooded, when animals that might be dangerous to humans were present, and when and where one could find edible food. Yeshua, Ishwa, experienced all of these sensations of the natural world around him, as, it, as he followed the rhythm of the sacred unity. To describe this rhythm of rightness and ripeness, the Aramaic language uses the word taba, usually translated good. From its roots, the words point to something that maintains its integrity and health by an inner sense of growth in harmony with what surrounds it. The Gospels quote Jesus using the word taba in several different ways. In, this, in, this, in one sense, it means that, that which is in tune and in harmony with sacred unity. Those who are good are in the right place in the right time with the right action. In this sense, 
They are prepared for any event, already ready, with full presence in the moment. This is that coming of the Lord. That's that being ready part that we were talking about. A derivative of this word means to prepare or make ready, as in Luke 3 and 4, where John the Baptist quotes Isaiah, prepare ye the way of the Lord. In the same sense, one can also make oneself ready for Passover, as we previously transform, as previously as we saw previously, transforming the soul self, ask for an even more refined sense of timing and readiness. Everything does not happen at once. By contrast, that which is bisha in Aramaic, usually translated evil, has fallen out of rhythm with sacred unity. This may mean that the being or act in question has been delayed in its progress and is not yet ready for the purpose for which it is meant, or it may mean that the being or act is no longer ripe. At one time and place it was appropriate, but it has now departed from the rhythm of the sacred I am, and it's become rotten, so to speak. Do you see how this word works within that agrarian society? How being in harmony, being in the flow of all these natural rhythms was the same as being good. It was the same as being blessed. It was all one thing, not separate things, but all one thing. This idea of always completing this cycle always takes us back to the beginning. And so Jesus is saying the same thing. As I said, Jesus and James teaching so much along this same sort of conceptual path. Let's move over to John 10, starting right at verse 1. This is Jesus speaking. Truly, truly, I say to you, He who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And to really understand what Jesus is getting at here, you have to understand an ancient Jewish sheep enclosure. Normally it was built against the hillside or against some some type of, of wall. And then three sides were built out. And they could use anything. And it didn't have to be very high. Sheep are not the brightest bulbs on the tree. You have to understand this. You know, you can basically just draw a chalk line and they're going to respect it. And so they just built a little bit just to, you know, to outline a wall here. And then there was an opening on one side that was the door. And the, the shepherd would have the sheep out and at pasture and grazing and doing what they did. And then when evening was coming, drive the sheep into the enclosure and literally just lay down in the doorway. The sheep wouldn't step over him. And he literally became the door. And so this is what Jesus is saying, is that door is the only legitimate way in and out, into the safety of the enclosure at night, out to the pasture and the abundance during the day. But with the safety of the shepherd, the only way in or out was this way. If you climbed out, if you shortcut it in any way, not legitimate. It's thieving and robbing, as he is saying. How many of you tried shortcuts in your life? How many? <laughs> how many? It was a rhetorical question, but I'll take hands. That's okay. Yeah. Those of you who are in recovery, how many of you have taken shortcuts in life? See, this is what we're talking about. We've all done it. We all try to get the pill or the thing or whatever. It's just going to take us right there, whether it's a diet or whether it's a mood-altering substance or whether it's a job. What is cheating on your tests all about? But trying to take a shortcut. But Jesus is saying there's only one legitimate way that you can go in and out. Only one way that this works. There's only one way to the Father. 
And I am that way. I am the door. Look what he says when he continues here. So Jesus said to him again at verse 7, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. See, Jesus is the door. Literally, they understood it. The shepherd lays down and becomes the door. Jesus is the door. He is showing the only legitimate way in and way out. There is no other way. And this way is an attitude of living life. It's the attitude of joy in the face of difficulties that James is talking about. It's the attitude of kingdom that Jesus outlines in the Beatitudes. Those who are humble, those who are unassuming, those who love peace and peacemaking, those who are willing to mourn and become available emotionally to the difficulties of life, whether their own or those of others. These attributes, long-suffering, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. See, it's the same thing. James is just continuing the Jesus thread here. All of those attributes are what bring us in and bring us out, into the safety, out to pasture. One way, one way of doing this. And so if we can adopt this attitude, if we can start to consider it joy, if we can start to make friends with life, then we can start to celebrate whatever the rains bring, whatever the tide brings, we can flow with it. We can find this place where we can live our lives not like the warrior, not in the constant anxiety. As I told you all, I happened to fall upon Castaway. Was it yesterday or the day before? And it's a story of a man. He's a FedEx uh, executive, and his plane goes down somewhere in the South Pacific, and his fiance for four years is wondering and they finally declare him dead and they bury him and everything but of course he's alive on this island and he finally makes his way back and when he does he finds that she has married someone else she already has a child by that marriage and his whole life that he knew is not available for him to go back to and there's this one key scene right at the end where he's speaking to his best friend and he says this he says we both had done the math and he's talking about him and his and Kelly his fiance Kelly added it all up and she knew she had to let me go I added it all up and knew that I had lost her too. I was never going to get off that island. I was going to die there, totally alone. I was going to get sick or get injured or something. The only choice I had, the only thing I could control was when and how and where it was going to happen. So I made a rope and I went up to the summit to hang myself. I had to test it, you know, of course, you know me. And the weight of the log snapped the limb of the tree, and so I couldn't even kill myself the way I wanted to. I had power over nothing. And then, that's when this feeling came over me like a warm blanket. I knew somehow that I had to stay alive. Somehow, I had to keep breathing. Even though there was no reason to hope, and all my logic said that I would never see my home again. So that's what I did. I stayed alive. I kept breathing. And one day my logic was proven all wrong because the tide came in and gave me a sail. And now here I am, 
back in Memphis talking to you. I have ice in my glass, and I've lost her all over again. And I'm so sad that I don't have Kelly, but I'm so grateful that she was with me on that island. And I know what I have to do now. I gotta keep breathing. Because tomorrow, the sun will rise. Who knows what the tide could bring? That's it, isn't it? Even in the face of difficulty, even in the face of thinking that there is no hope, even in the face of seeing or thinking that there's no way that this story comes out any better than it already has or is, we just keep breathing. Because our God is a God of suddenlies. Suddenly the wind changes. Suddenly someone or something comes into your path and changes everything. And all the rules that you were playing by, everything that you thought you know, suddenly is moot. Suddenly doesn't apply anymore. And something else is possible that you never saw coming. You know, To welcome life, to live life on life's terms, this is what James is trying to get us to see, trying to get us to do. Can we do it? Even marooned on the island that exists only in our minds, that keeps us there, in that place, circling and spinning and saying the same old things to us over and over again, can we find another way to look at this? Back at John 10, 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. That first line, I am the good shepherd, literally in Aramaic, ena, ena, rea, shlama, ena, ena, rea, taba. Ena, ena is another idiomatic expression in Aramaic. It means I, I. Literally, you would translate ena, ena, rea, taba, as I, I, shepherd good. That's the way it would translate. And the I, I, repeated that way, is an intensive construction in Aramaic. It's an emphatic statement of being. It's an emphatic presence. I am. I am this shepherd good. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That construction appears in all the I am statements that Jesus makes. Enna, enna. But this idea of shepherd good, think about it for a second. This shepherd is not just the good shepherd. That's the way we would translate in English. But it really is, is a shepherd of ripeness, the shepherd of completion, the shepherd of wholeness. What Jesus is really saying is, I am the one who guides, the one who tends, the one who nurtures my sheep into ripeness, wholeness, fullness. Do you see the difference there? I'm the good shepherd. Okay, I am the one who guides my sheep, those who follow me, into ripeness, fullness, goodness. Completely different idea here. We have to understand what is going on in these simple passages. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the door. Jesus is the one who guides and tends and nurtures and corrals and teaches and educates and does everything to get us into this place that he calls kingdom, this place of ripeness, coming full circle, losing our fear, taking us into this new place. How does this happen? 
How does it work? How does this shepherd do his thing? Well, we have to participate. You know? We're smarter than sheep. That gets us into a lot of trouble. Right? The sheep just go where the shepherd leads. Simple. We don't do that. We can make choices. How does it work for Jesus to be the shepherd of our ripeness? It's when we bring our enna enna to match and play with his enna enna. When we bring our presence to his presence, when we connect with him, that's what following is. Following isn't having the same mindset, the same belief system, to sign your line at the bottom of a creed. That's not following anything. Jesus said, if you obey my commandments. In other words, if you go by this door, in and out, and don't try to take a shortcut, then you're my followers, and you will know a truth, and the truth will make you free. Free from what? Free from the fear that keeps us from being present. We start with the risk. We have to take the risk of being present to something that we don't yet know is trustworthy, that we don't yet know won't hurt us. But when we do, when we follow through the door, when we're willing to be present even to the difficulties in life, and we move through them and get to the other side, we take the descent, we come back to the ascent, we find the joy of being reconnected and reincorporated, when we come back to where we started again, full circle, and we realize that's how life works. I can do this, but I have to experience it. I have to trust enough, just enough, to take that first step, to take that first risk, to take Jesus at his word, and to stop all of the pantheon of shortcuts that we have established in our lives and follow by this one door. Can we do that? James finishes off at verse 10 of chapter 5. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. And so the prophets and Job give us an example of what it looks like to move through these difficulties, to get to the other side. They bear it out. If we need those examples, they're there for us. To remain present, to remain vigilant, to keep our feet firmly in the soil, to stop trying to force things with the shortcuts of our own machinations and just let the seasons and the early and late rains play through our lives as Jesus did. To stay close to the moment, even if it's painful to stay close to God's presence is the tending to our ripeness that Jesus is doing in our lives. Because we don't do it under our own power, do we? We are powerless. If we don't haven't figured that out yet, take another look. Because your shortcuts are examples of you trying to take your own control and your own power. But to finally realize that you don't have control over the wind and the rain that is playing through your life is to finally realize that the one choice that is left to us is to hitch our wagon to the power that's greater than ourselves. And let that take us through these circles and circles within circles And as we come full circle through the pain and back to wholeness, we find that wisdom that is the perfect result that James is talking about. And we really will be lacking nothing. Let's all pray.
Father, thank you so much, Lord. In this new year, this artificial line, we do resolve to follow you more completely in whatever that means in whatever moment we find ourselves. Resolve to let go as soon as we become aware that we're holding on to another shortcut, another thing that keeps us from the right door, the only door, that we will let go and we will turn and face you again. And through just the repetition of that process, all those circles in our lives, we will trust that we will find you in a deeper way. Father, we thank you. We thank you for everything that you're doing in our lives. Everything that you do to blow through the presence of your spirit in ways that we can know and trust and feel. Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us the way that you do. Help us to remember that we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name. Just sit there for one more second. We've been talking so much about Aramaic. I thought it would be nice just to hear the Lord's Prayer first in as close approximation to the way Jesus would have said it. And then we'll say it all together in English. Who's Father? Our Father, who art in heaven.